We're going to head to Hebrews chapter 11 and continue a series that we begun last Sunday. How many of you weren't here last Sunday? So Father, just thank you for these moments we share around your word. Thank you for the power and the promise of your scripture. We're talking about faith, Lord, and your word says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So I pray that we would hear more than a sermon this morning as we gather, but that faith itself would be stirred in our hearts and in our midst. And our prayer as always would be, Lord, would you show us who you are? And in seeing you, would you transform us by the renewing of our mind more and more into your image? We desire our lives to be all about you living for your glory, knowing more of you, walking closer with you. We desire to see you do all that you want to do in us and through us. And so whatever you want to do this morning, we say yes and amen. Come and have your way, Lord. Yes and amen. We thank you for your faithfulness and your love. We thank you that you never give up. You're always working on our hearts. So whatever you've got to do this morning, just come and do what you need to. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you came in late, Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to read a passage, probably the most well-known passage, dealing with this issue of faith. And as I set the scene a little bit last week, faith, I think, is this word that we use all the time. In fact, we probably overuse it and at times misuse it. And it's become to mean so much that it's almost become, I, I fear, at times, meaningless. What is faith? <clears throat> what is faith? And really, Hebrews 11 details this, I believe, so well. There is a genuine article of faith. There is this faith, as the author described, that would cause people to do incredible things for the glory of God. It's involved everywhere. It says, by faith we worship, by faith we draw near to God, by faith... The very outcome and destiny of nations were changed by faith. The mouths of lions were stopped by faith. Hardship was endured by faith. Widows received their dead to life. This incredible thing of faith. What is faith? And certainly we could say that it is both our call but also our privilege. Not just to explore and to understand but to live out what it means and what it looks like to be a people of faith. That went over really well. I could feel the enthusiasm, the excitement. We are. There is a call on your life and on my life, on our life, as the people of God, as a church, to live lives of faith. And more than anything else, that's what I would love to challenge and to inspire us about. Not just so that we would come away with a new teaching, perhaps a new definition, a new understanding and perspective on faith. Those things are not bad but that there would be something stirred in our hearts afresh. A fresh desire to live out lives of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what it says. So let's journey together. Hebrews 11 verse 1. <clears throat> we'll very quickly review where we're up to so far, and then we'll launch into what I want us to focus on this morning. 
Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Really what the author is doing here is trying to give us somewhat of a definition of faith. And we're going to look a little bit later at, at some of the context of this particular passage. But we talked last week about the first part of this particular passage, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith being the assurance of things hoped for. Now that word assurance, it literally means to be fully sure, to be fully steadfast, or to be fully secure. And what is it that we're to be fully sure or fully secure of? Well, he says we're fully assured of things hoped for. And ultimately, what is our hope? It's not a trick question. Well, he is my hope. I'll tell you that. He is my hope. My hope is not in anything, but it's in a person. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. So we could define, and this is what we talked about last week, the first part of, I believe, what the author is trying to encourage us in this area of faith, that faith is to be fully leaning upon the present promise of Christ. It's to be fully leaning upon Him and who He is. His promise, His presence with us, His promise towards us. So that takes us then to the second part of this verse. It's the assurance to be sure of things hoped for, but it's also the conviction of things not seen. Now I'm reading from the ESV. The ESV translates it, this particular word, conviction. If you have a New King James, anyone New King James fan? Nobody, NIV, a few New King James does anyone read their Bible? Anyone? Yes? Okay. Obviously got some other translation. I won't ask what it is. The New King James and some other translations translate this word evidence. The evidence of things not seen. Some translations even the substance. The problem is that often when we read this, we think, well, it's describing some past process or encounter. The evidence is in, I viewed it, past tense. This word here is actually continual present tense, which so often we miss when we translate words into English. The literal translation is the means by which a thing is proved or tested. So we could say that what really is being referred to here is a continual proving process. It's not a once-off and it's not a past tense. It's the continual proving process of faith. We're going to understand and come back and try and explore what this means. But he goes on. So it's the continual proving process of things not seen. Now that can be translated as literally the things that we can't see. The things we can't see with our physical eyesight. It's the proving process of those. But it also means and can be translated things that can only be known by experience or by testing. So really, again, you see this theme that there's an aspect of faith that can only be proved and tested through a process. And that should make some degree of sense. For example, the Scriptures promise us that He is faithful. We sung about it, that He's faithful, that He is a present help in times of trouble, that He is a comfort, that He is a refuge. Well, they're great promises, but you can never really know God as your comfort and your refuge until you're in a place where you need a comfort and a refuge. So there is this process of faith that it's not a belief, it's not an understanding, but it is a continual proving process of His presence. 
Clear so far. Good. Bit of encouragement would be great. This will all go smoother for all of us. Amen. It's a little bit like, you know, I could tell you what it's like to sit on the front seat here. I could say, you know, the best place to sit in church is the front seat. You're closer to the preacher. You've got to watch a little bit if he's a bit too excited and spittle flies everywhere. But it's wonderful. You're up the front. You've got the best view of the screens. You get the cool breeze. I could describe it to you. We could have a belief and an understanding about what it is like to sit on the front seat. But you're never actually going to know until you come and sit in the front seat. This is good. I could just preach from here. No, moving on. So that's what faith. Faith is by nature doing something. And every example and illustration we see of faith that the, the writer to Hebrews writes, faith is doing something. It's always connected with the verb. There's at least 12, if you want to count them, for those who like numbers. You can go through this passage and count each of these verbs. It says, by faith, worship. By faith, draw near. By faith, this person obeyed. By faith, this person conquered this kingdom. By faith, justice enforced, etc., etc., etc. Faith is always doing something. It's not a belief about. We can have these wonderful beliefs about who he is, about his promises, about his greatness and his love. But as James says, you think you have a belief in God? Big deal. Even the, the demons, Satan and all his angels have a belief in God and they tremble. I love that part. But it's not a belief that he's interested in. It's a people of faith who will come and experience and enjoy and partake of that which he has promised. And this is the privilege and the priority of faith. This is the proving process of faith. That's why James goes on and he says, you say you have faith, but I, I can tell you that without works, there is no such thing as faith because faith by nature has works. It is outworked. It is connected with a verb. It has an action. So as I said, we're just trying to give us a bit of a grid and a framework for what faith is. Last week we looked at this nature of what it means to lean on the present promises of Christ. And this morning I want us to think about, to understand and to explore what it means to be a people who live in the proving process. Faith is leaning on the present promises. Faith is living out this proving process. And so point one, encouragement one, aspect number one that I want to encourage us if we really want to be a people who live out the proving process, then I'll give it to you and then I'll explain it. Never lose sight or never let go of his promise. Never lose sight, never let go of his promise. Now think about this for a minute. What is it? We're in this proving process of faith. What is it that we're proving? What is it that we're putting to test as we put our belief into action? I'll give you the answer. I saw some confused looks. It's a bit too much for Sunday morning. I would suggest to us that we are proving his promises. And the way I could, we could phrase this is the framework for faith and for living a life of faith is his promise, is his purpose, not our pleasure. Not always our pleasure. The framework for faith is his promise and see so often this is we talked last week about some of the misunderstandings about faith and here's another one so often you hear a message preached about faith and whether we mean to or not we make the outcome of our faith us 
Faith is a means to an end, and faith is a means to our end and fulfilling every desire and pleasure of our heart. Yeah, you, you hear sermons like, if you, if you want it, just, just believe it. Just, just name it and claim it, whatever it is. You know, just imagine that nice Mercedes in your driveway, the nice boat. The problem with that sort of thinking about faith, you see, is that every example I read in the book of Hebrews is God is always the initiator. He initiates and we respond. It's, it doesn't say, he doesn't say, by faith, Abraham really thought that it would be better if he could, you know, for the effectiveness of his ministry, have a private jet that could fly him around everywhere. And so he sowed seeds of faith, 5,000, 10,000, 30,000, and then the Lord provided him his very desire. It never says that. God is always the initiator of our faith, and we respond to him. So just come back. And I want to show you this in Hebrews chapter 10. We already mentioned it this morning. It was too good. I stole my thunder, but it was just, it was too good to wait. I love this description in Hebrews 10 verse 19 is where we're heading. Remembering that the the writer here gives us his definition in verse 11, but it's in response to both what he's already said and then to the demonstration or the outworking of faith that he will present, the so-called hall of faith of these incredible people of faith who did incredible things for God. And up until this point, the, the writer of Hebrews is talking, has been talking all about Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he's fulfilled. And in verse 19 of chapter 10, he says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and he has made this incredible count of the work of the blood of Christ. It is complete. It is sufficient. It is powerful. It says, therefore, because, and we don't have the time to review all that, but since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that's opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, here it is, verse 23, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And I would ask us this question, what is, that would, what is it that would cause us to draw near with this full assurance of faith? What is it that would cause us to hold fast to our confession? What is it that would cause us to be unwavering in our hope? The hope that we have in Him. To live these lives of faith, drawing near. I would say it's one reality in verse 23. For He who promised is faithful. Our confidence is based on on His faithfulness. Our confidence is based upon His faithfulness to do what He said He would do. And you see, this is both a reality, but it's also an encouragement for us that if He has promised, He is a God who is faithful to fulfill His promise. He is a promise-giving and a promise-giving keeping God. Some theologians like to say, well, there's at least 3,000 
Others say, well, there's at least 5,000. Some even say there's at least 10,000. I don't know. I've not counted them. You can do that if you'd like. But there is a lot of promises in here alone. He is a promise-giving God. But he's proven himself faithful to be a promise-keeping God. And you see, living this life of faith, here's, here's the point. The framework for faith is his promise because faith is the confidence that God will do whatever God has promised. That's what faith is. It is the confidence, it's the assurance that he will do whatever he's promised. Not whatever our pleasure might be. He is faithful to fulfill his word, not necessarily your pleasure. He loves you too much for that. He's not just interested in your comfort. He's interested in your character. He is. He loves you too much. I would not be a loving father if I gave my children everything they desired. Believe me, we made the mistake recently of offering them uh, some time on the iPad. We've been sort of able to avoid TV games. and Well, let me tell you, th those things are addictive. And we would have heard, I think my wife just stopped counting about 20 times of, when can I play the iPad again? Can't I play? You would really love me if you let me play the iPad. And you know, the manipulation, it all starts and the tear works. And I would not be a loving father if I gave my children everything that they wanted. So it's not the means to fulfill your every pleasure. Lord, why can't I play the iPad? But it is the means by which we live in His promises for His purpose. For the glory of God on earth. I want to look at this whole idea of being a people of promise, of never losing sight and never giving up His promise from one other perspective. Just jump over to First Peter. Keep your finger in Hebrews. Come over to First Peter with me. Chapter 1. I love how he phrases this encouragement, writing to believers in Jesus. And in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it just gets better. That's good enough there. But verse 8, he says, Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot of joy. An inexpressible joy filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, this is the promise of God in the midst of the process. And if you're going through a a process, or if you're not now, the next time that you go through a process that's difficult, the one thing you want to remember is His promise. I've shared this story before, but there's some difficult processes, and one of them is going on long trips, as we like to do every year, with young children. There is a test that will test your faith, and your patience, and your endurance, and you always worry when it gets to the stage when, forget the kids asking, when are we there yet? You're asking each other. When are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the only thing that gets you through that is remembering the promise. That there's a promise in the midst of the process. That we're getting somewhere. And this, this somewhere is worth the pain of the process. See, Peter's description here I love. And James takes it the next step further, doesn't he? Where he talks about 
It's a bigger scope and it's a bigger response. He says, count it all joy when you experience all trials. That's a lot of alls in one sentence. And I would love to be the first in line in eternity, not that you'd ever really bother about this when you got there, but to say to him, was that for real? Like, is that actually for real? All joy, all trials? Was that some sort of pastoral? Like, is, is that actually possible? Peter kind of phrases it. He's like, if necessary, there's some trials. Don't worry because there's a promise. Whereas James is just like, woohoo, all joy. And I don't know. I'm not there yet. I can endure some trials because I know God's in it. There's a process that he's going to be developing. As he said, you know, the thing that's, that's worth more than anything is, is my faith in him and the reality, inexpressible joy filled with glory. I can see that all over your faces. It's, it's heartwarming. And that's what it's about, isn't it? That's what, that's what I want. I want that kind of faith. I want the inexpressible filled with glory, and that's found in the midst of the process, so I can endure. The only thing I can suggest is that James must have been a man with a very big promise. Because it's the only way that, only way that you could ever get to a place where you're in the midst of that problem and that process, and you're counting it all joy, is if your promise is so much greater than the process that you're in. So this is the first step, I believe, in learning what it means to be a people of faith is to have a big promise. Not that the promises get bigger, but they certainly do get bigger in our perspective. Have you lost your promise? Are you holding on to the promise? And I mean the promise in here. The promise of the inexpressible joy found in the refining of my faith. The promise of His goodness and His faithfulness. But I'm also talking about His promise to you as an individual. His promises to us as a church. It's one of the most incredible things to remember the promises that the Lord has spoken over your life. We've had a practice with our kids of praying for them regularly and having little promise books where we record down all the things that the Lord is, is saying. Have a big promise. Perhaps some of us this morning need to expand our vision. Not of how God could use us for our pleasure, but how God could use us for His purpose and within His promise so point two point one is never let go and never lose sight of his promise if we want to be a, a people who really walk by faith point two there's got to be we've already talked about this but let's develop it there's got to be a working out there's got to be a putting into action reality of that which the lord has promised it's the the promise of god put into action in our lives. And I want to make it really clear, we talked a lot last week about faith is not this thing that we work up. This is in no way a working up, but it is a working out. It's God's divine gem. It's a working out. And it's at this point that some of us, I believe, that our, our faith falls short. I was reflecting upon this recently as I was... Uh, Spending some time over the last month or so building a extended veggie patch in our backyard. I've always enjoyed being outside. I love that sort of thing. I love getting dirty. And um, my wife once for Valentine's Day, she bought me a wheelbarrow, which I just think says it all. It's a wonderful present. 
If I get a bit grumpy inside, she just comes and hands me a shovel. She says, here you go, go outside, knock yourself out. So we've recently bought, we've got, we've got a bigger property, we've got capacity to have a bigger size veggie patch. So the veggie patch has now turned into a veggie paddock. So it's a lovely big area and I've been preparing the soil to, to plant the veggies. And so both of my girls have been really excited. They've seen this veggie paddock starting to take shape. And they said, Dad, would you mind if we both had a little section of the veggie patch? We've got the space now. We've tried to do it before, but they end up with one sort of tiny little plot because I've got all the things I want to put in there. So I said, Dad, can we have our own veggie patch? I said, great, absolutely. You have a think about what you want. Now let me know and we'll put it into action. So they've been talking together. This is the two oldest ones and devising and scheming. And my oldest one in particular likes to sketch it all out. So she had the list of instructions. She had detailed drawings and schematics. She had it planned out. And there was going to be flowers on the side and decorations, posters up, you know, stick on the side. And it was this elaborate veggie patch. I said, all right, great, let's go. And off we went into the garden. And, and she's generally a girl who doesn't like to be outside she endures being outside if she has to whereas some of my other girls just love it enjoy being outside would stay outside all day if they could so i said great let's let's enact this vision let's put into place this veggie patch first of all we've got to do some clearing and so this is this is no pastoral exaggeration all here I promise i assure you the very first weed that she was removing and everything's wet and soggy, and she sort of leaned at a distance, you know, to see if she could, how far you could possibly be from the weed to pull it out of the ground. She grabbed a hold, and she pulled, and she pulled, and then all of a sudden, out it came. She fell on her backside. And as you can imagine, there was hysterics and waterworks. She put it on, and she said to me, she said, Daddy, this is just not right. I said, oh, sweetie, what's not right? She said, Daddy, Daddy. I'm a clean girl, not a dirty girl. I'm not a dirty girl. Now, there was nothing problem. There was no problem. There's nothing wrong at all with her vision. She had a genuinely wonderful vision of this veggie patch that she was going to create. What she didn't realize is that it was going to take some work to get her there. And you see, I think so often when it comes to faith, there's not a working up, but there is a working out. And all of us would say we'd read these big promises of God, the power of God to transform our city, the power of God to make a difference in our schools, whatever it might be, the big promise. And we've got to dream big because he's a big God who gives us big promises. Nothing wrong with that. But then it comes time and the Lord says, great, Lord, we want to see you move in our city. We want to see salvations and people come to know you. And the Lord says, great, okay. Well, I want you to go and start feeding the homeless. Ooh. And we say, oh, God, but God, I'm a clean Christian. I'm not a dirty Christian. Really, isn't this? Well, I could catch something. Isn't there somebody else who could go and do that? Or perhaps, you know, the Lord, he's given us his promise. He said, I, I want to see revival come to your school. I want to I see that, you know, just be a move of the spirit in, in the hearts of the students. And you say, great, yes, at my school my playgroup, whatever it is. Come on, God, give us the faith to really see you move there. The Lord says, good, okay. Well, I want you to step out and begin to, to boldly share your faith. Say, oh, but, but God, I'm a clean Christian. I'm not a dirty Christian. I have a reputation. What if it gets a bit tarnished? What are people going to think of me? What are they going to say? 
And we could continue on. There is a working out to our faith. You see, all of us would say, yes, we want the faith to move mountains. I don't think anyone would say, no, skip over that one. I'll just take some of the... We'll say, yes, we want the faith to move mountains. But the reality is, if you want the faith to move mountains, there's probably some mountains that are going to need to be moved. And that will more than likely require a bit of heavy lifting. Faith is not always clean Christian. It's putting it into action as he leads us, as he calls us out, as he initiates us. It's the reality of reaching out into that which he has promised, a living out and a working out of what he is leading us towards. You see, I think the problem sometimes is I believe that probably, particularly in our city, but probably across other cities as well, I think there's probably more lycra and sweat socks and yoga pants per capita than any other time in history. The problem is that we seem to have forgotten that the purpose of lycra and sweat socks and yoga pants is actually to do a workout. You see people in coffee shops and doing their groceries and everywhere but in the gym. And it's a bit the same with faith. We talk about it. We talk about it probably more than anything else. We're happy to put on the clothes, talk the talk, and walk the walk. But we've got to realize that there's an aspect of faith that's not just for talking. It's not just for decoration. It's for demonstration. It's to be put into action. Faith is about working out. You know, I believe that the greatest threat to the Western church is not anything external. We could talk about some of the challenges in our own city, in our own nation. could certainly talk about some of the things going on around the world. You know, maybe there'll be persecution that will come. Maybe Who knows? The reality is every time anything external comes against the church, the church thrives. History has proven that. Where there's persecution, where there's opposition, the church absolutely gets set on fire. I don't think the greatest risk to the church is anything external but in fact it is that complacency and comfort would rob us from truly pressing in and living out what the lord has for us as individuals and as a church and this living out doesn't come without challenges i remember hearing a testimony from reinhard bonke most of you i'm sure would be aware of his ministry and the impact that he's had with the gospel throughout africa and I forget how many, it's literally, I think, it's no exaggeration, it's certainly ten to, tens of millions of people who have made public professions. He has these crusades of millions of people and, and just hundreds of thousands come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was talking about how the Lord led him to the, the ministry that he's done so faithfully for many years. And his story was he'd always known that he had a call from the Lord to go to Africa and be a missionary he followed that call and he'd gone through a particular mission board that had sent him and released him and offered to pay his finance and raise funds for him. And so he'd been doing that for some time, I think for a few years. He'd seen some small success. But then the Lord gave him this dream and it was a dream that he saw time and time again. A famous dream that I'm sure probably if you've heard his teaching, you would have heard him share. But it was a dream of he saw the, the nation of Africa. And in the dream, this, this map of Africa was washed red 
in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Lord spoke to him and said, all of Africa will be saved. And he had that dream repeatedly. And that was when the Lord said, this is the dream, this is the vision, this is the, the promise that I have for you if you'll step out and believe me. And he knew at that time that the Lord was calling him to change what he'd been doing and to hold big public bold crusades, which at that time no one had really done in Africa. It was a big step of faith. And so he wrote straight away to the, the board of the mission work that had supported him and was giving him funding. He said, this is what I feel like the Lord has told me I'm to do. This is his promise, that all of Africa will be saved and that I'm to do this. And they wrote back straight away, the, the mission board, and they said, well, if you do that, we'll have nothing further to do with you. We'll cease our funding. You're on your own. And he said he was faced at that moment with this dilemma, this incredible promise from God, but he knew it was going to cost him. And so he, uh, he went to prayer. He said he booked a hotel. He would planned to pray for the entire week and just seek the will of God. And it was the very first time he sat down to pray. He said it didn't even last the first night, but he sat down to pray. And the Lord spoke so clearly and said, Reinhard, that is the vision that I have for your life. But if you drop the vision, I'll find someone else. If you drop the vision, I'll drop you, I think was his exact phrase. And he was so shaken up about this, this dream that he went and he wrote the letter, the response back to the board straight away. He said, nope, the Lord's spoken, I'm sorry, but I will not drop the vision regardless of the cost. And interestingly, as time went on and they saw the incredible success on his ministry, the mission board came back knocking at his door and wanted to befriend him again. The point is this, is that faith does require some cost. It's messy. It's about a working out of the promise. There is a people who grab a hold of what the Lord is saying and promising, regardless of the cost. Another great example in Scripture would be Mordecai's words to Esther, this woman in the Old Testament who'd been raised up and put in a position of influence to save and to rescue the Jewish people. And uh, as, as she's there wrestling with what she's to do, the famous words where he says to her, he says, well, it could be that the Lord has raised you up for such a time as this, that you're going to be the one that he will use to deliver his people, to save them for destruction. You'd be thinking, ah, yes, it's me. But then he ends with this. He says, but... If it's not you, the Lord will find someone else. And I think it's a sobering reminder that there is a people who will grab a hold of what the Lord is saying and will move and will say, no, Lord, we believe that we are here for such a time as this. Do not pass us by, but we're grabbing a hold of your promise and we're determined to put it into action in our lives, regardless of how messy and how unpopular it might be. That we would not only be a people with a big promise, but a people who put that promise into action. And thirdly, very quickly, and then we'll bring this to a conclusion, I just want to encourage us that this whole area and this message of faith, sometimes we have a tendency, you hear a story about Reinhard Bonnke, you have a story about some of these other great heroes of faith, and you think, well, how does that apply to little old me? You know, it's like this picture that someone posts on Pinterest. If we know what Pinterest is or Instagram, this, this perfect finished product. 
But faith is not just about the finished product. Faith is about the process. So point three is it's not what you've got, it's who you've got. Or you could say it's about giving him what you've got and letting him do the rest. So let's just look at one example. If you're back in Hebrews 11... says in Hebrews 11 verse 11 talking about Sarah the wife of Abraham whom the Lord had promised they were both beyond the years where they could naturally conceive and have a child the Lord said to them you're going to have a child and this is what it says I love this description about Sarah in Hebrews 11 verse 11 it says by faith Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? She considered him faithful who had promised. The thing that surprises me about this, and the first time I read it, I thought, there seems to me to be a few details that have been left out. Not about you, but is, is this the same Sarah we're talking about, who when the Lord came to her and said, you will be with child, she laughed in unbelief. She said, God, that's the most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard in my life. Is this the same Sarah that, not only did she disbelieve the promise of God, but she went out of her way to try and do everything she could to make this promise come to pass, even by suggesting that her husband should fall, have, have a baby with another woman. Totally thwarting the plans and purposes. of Is this the same woman? You see, if I'd been writing this, I would have said, well, by faith, Sarah got there in the end, but gee, it was a journey. She was the most unbelieving and difficult woman that laughed in the face of God when he promised and everything she could to thwart the purpose and plan of God and really it's a miracle that she, he even put up with her. And, but it doesn't. There's a few details that I believe are intentionally left out. You see, it's not about, I believe, trying to have it all together. It's just about getting out of the boat. And all God remembers is Sarah. By faith, she considered him faithful. It's not about having, trying to have it all together. It's just about getting out of the boat. See, so often I believe when it comes to faith, we're like, well, we'll just wait until the Lord you know, deals with some stuff and finishes this process. And there's a wonderfully encouraging and sobering verse in Philippians 1.6. He says, I have confidence that he who's begun a good work will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, that's incredibly encouraging, isn't it? Because it means that the Lord will never give up on us. Never will. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter where you go. He will never give up on you. You know, the sobering part of that verse is that you and I are going to need work until the day of Christ Jesus. If he's never given up on us, then that's a whole lot of work that needs to be done in my life and in your life. You're never going to make it. And if you're waiting till you reach or arrive in some destination before you step out in faith, what's well, going to be the other side of eternity? And there's not much faith that's required in heaven. There's very little evangelizing and work to do for the glory of God once you're standing in His presence. You see, this is for now when we realize that we don't have to have it all together. we just got to get out of the boat because it's not what you've got, but who you've got that counts. And we could detail so many examples. The loaves and the fishes. This little guy called Gideon. God says, mighty man of God. He says, where? 
It's not what you've got. It's who you've got that counts. You just give him what you've got and watch him take the ordinary, the warts and all, the mess, and he'll turn it into a message of his glory and goodness. He'll take the ordinary of the loaves and fishes and make it into something extraordinary. And that's all about what the life of faith is. It's about never letting go and never losing sight of his promise. It's about work out God's great gym, putting it into action. And it's about not getting it all together, but just getting out of the boat. Just getting out of the boat. Just giving him what you have. We need a bigger promise. We need a greater passion to walk out the promise. And we need to have a sense in which we just offer him, Lord, here I am. Maybe I've laughed at you when you said that I was going to do this. Maybe I've thwarted your every plan with my own arrogance and ignorance. But whatever is left, it's yours. And then by faith. By faith, Catherine. By faith, Justin. By faith. And I love this because in Hebrews 12, it then talks about, Therefore, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us too run in the same way. This is not an, inexhaust, an exhaustive, this is an inexhaustible list. The whole idea is that we're supposed to add our names, the great hall of faith of them who believed that he who promised is faithful live it out can we pray i'm going to talk in a couple of weeks time i hope just about some wonderful faith adventures that will bark upon as a church but as we just bring this to a conclude a conclusion as we just turn our attention to the lord again as i said at the beginning my heart is that somehow in the proclamation of his word, of us exploring this area of faith, that he would stir our hearts afresh. And so I want to just pray in that vein, and I want to encourage you, just open your heart afresh to the Lord. Lord, we want to be this people of faith. We do. I'm speaking for myself and to anyone else who will say yes. We want to be a people of faith. We do not want to stand back, Lord, but we want to enter into the fullness of all that you have for us. I thank you that to those who believe, nothing is impossible. I thank you that there is a faith that can move mountains and there is a faith that can endure hardship and trials. And Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts in this area of faith. That Lord, if there is anyone here who needs a bigger promise, that you would cause our eyes to be lifted out of the process onto the promise of who you are, that you would bring even right now in this moment to our mind and to our hearts, stir our hearts again with your promises, the promises of your word and the promises of what you've said to us. That, Lord, where there's dreams and vision that have died through the difficulty of seasons and circumstances, that you would resurrect them, that you'd bring them to life again. That we would be a people possessed with your promise. That we would have such a big promise. Could we even dare to ask that like James, we'd laugh in the presence of mountains. Knowing that there might be difficult processes, but we've got such a bigger promise. And a God who promised who is faithful. 
Give us a bigger picture, Lord. And for some of us, maybe it's a nudge that we need to put into action the promise that you've given us. That faith requires work. Maybe we've given up because it's too difficult. It's too hard. I'm a clean Christian. I'm not a dirty Christian. I couldn't do that. It's too hard. Lord, would you stir our hearts? Would we be like Reinhard who would grab a hold of your promise regardless of the cost and say, no, I'm living to see your promise fulfilled in my time, in my day, in my life, in my city. And Lord, where perhaps it's a sense of, well, we need to get it all together, that would be a people recognizing that we don't have to have it all together. It's not about who we are, what we've got. It's about whose we are and that we would give you the little that we have and watch you turn the ordinary into the extraordinary for the glory of your name. We pray that in Jesus' name.